0: Thank you, Ruth. And thanks be to God for his word. Amen. Well, today, brothers and sisters, we're looking at this chapter, Daniel, chapter 3, the book of Daniel the prophet as part of our series, The Life and Times of Daniel. Um, And isn't it good that as a church, as we walk through the Bible, it's the Bible that sets the agenda for what we study. Amen. I don't know if you realize how important that is. But the Bible sets the agenda for what this church and for what you and your Christian journey are studying, not me. And that's good news for you because guess what? I'm fallible just like you and I have the things that I would like to talk to you about. And that's why we use the Bible as a safeguard. That's why we preach the word and we go verse by verse so that your pastor doesn't get to just preach what he wants to preach. I promise you, if you let that happen, it wouldn't be good for your spiritual health. And so we're in a church today that walks through the scriptures, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And therefore it is the Holy Spirit that sets the agenda, not me. I want you to be understanding that very clearly. If it was me, I would prefer not to be talking about false worship and idolatry today. But my agenda is set for me. Amen. So, this is what I'm going to be talking to you about today. This is what we, together as a church, will be looking at, and that is the subject of idolatry. It is the subject of false worship. It is the subject of spiritual narcissism, and which is a force active in the church and in the world today. I want you to understand this, okay? None of the issues that you are going to be looking at today in this text written two and a half thousand years ago. None of the issues we shall look at today are dead. None of them are irrelevant. I want you to understand that very clearly. The Bible speaks to this context, 2,500 years later, every bit as clearly as it did to Daniel and his friends in Babylon. The world Though it has changed in terms of its technology, though we have advanced in, in medicine and in many other ways, the problem of man stays the same. Quintessentially, mankind has not changed one bit. And the problems that mankind faces today, the limitations which we reach as human beings, are for the same exact reasons that they found limitations two thousand six hundred years ago. The problem is sin. The problem is sin. And so today I want you to understand every single issue that we touch on is relevant for you today. And I pray by God's grace that it would enable us as a church to have our eyes open. You understand me? Our eyes open to what is happening in the world in this day. Now how many of you understand that the Bible wasn't originally written in King James English? Garth knows that, don't you Garth? we understand that the Bible was not written originally in English. In fact, it was written predominantly in two ancient languages, one of which, uh, well, both of which really are not used in in the form they were written in. The Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, in the language of Hebrew. And the New Testament, how many of you know what the New Testament was written in? In Greek, yes, Koine Greek, which is common Greek, okay? Not classical, but a common form of Greek. Now, what's interesting today is that this this passage we're studying, chapter 3 of Daniel, I tried to read it. Now, I am a Hebrew student. I'm not great. I'm not very good, but I do my best. I opened up Daniel chapter 3 in my Hebrew Bible, and I was thinking, I've never seen these words before. I was having to go on my computer. I was having to look them up. And then I remembered, it's not in Hebrew. It's in Aramaic. What's interesting is that these six chapters, from Daniel chapter 2 through to Daniel chapter 7, are the only six chapters of the Old Testament not written in Hebrew. Isn't that incredible? They are written in Aramaic. And also, taken together, chapters 2 to chapter 7, they are written in what is called a chiastic structure. Now, this is really geeky. What that means is that these six chapters have a sort of symmetry to them. They have a sort of symmetry. So, if you look carefully, and I I challenge you to do this this week when you go home, I want you to look at chapter 2 of Daniel, which, of course, is the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then I want you to look at chapter 7, which is at the opposite bookend of this little passage of six chapters. And I want you to look for similarities. I want you to then look at chapter 3, which is the one we're studying today about this golden image. And then I want you to look at chapter 6. And I want you to see that there is symmetry. And there is also symmetry in chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's, it's a chiastic structure. It's incredible. How the writer of Daniel, and Daniel has presented this in such an incredible way, he's arranged these chapters in a symmetrical way. It's like if you stuck a mirror in between those two chapters, they would mirror one another thematically. Amazing. And also, I want to say right now, up front, many of us are familiar with the book of Daniel, aren't we? The, the story of Daniel in the lion's den is one of the first stories, isn't it, that we ever learn as Christians. I'm sure each of you who was raised in a Christian home remembers the little books with the pictures in of Daniel in the lion's den. And indeed, even non-Christians from around the world are familiar with the stories of this little prophetic book in the Bible. But I actually believe that many of us Christians have never begun to even plumb the depths of this incredible book. How many of you understand that? I believe there are multiple layers of depth in this book of Daniel. That speak prophetically into this day right now. And we haven't even begun to plumb the depths of it. I believe it's a book that speaks to this current age in a profound matter. That's why we are studying it together. And I pray it will illuminate, illuminate rather, our hearts and minds. And help us to live according to truth in our day. So, thank you Ruth for reading that and saving my voice today. We read in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar, the tyrant king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, a historical figure, people who aren't Christians often tend to cringe when I say things like that. He is a historical figure. The Bible is not a book of fables and fairy tales, it is a book of facts. It is a book of facts, historical facts. The minute that you take historical facts away from the Bible and you say it doesn't matter if these things never actually occurred, guess what happens? You don't have a savior any longer. Christianity is a religion that is built on facts. It is not a religion that is built on fables, it is not a religion that is built upon nice moral teachings. You take away the facts from Christianity and you don't have Christianity anymore. It's really important we understand that as a church. Christianity is a religion based on historical facts. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, a real, historical, tyrannical king, has set up this image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his breadth was 6 cubits, we read in verse 1. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, scholars actually believe they found the plain of Dura. You, you know where Babylon is in the world? Anybody know what country to look in if you're looking for Babylon? Iraq. Modern-day Iraq, south of Baghdad, okay? South of Baghdad in the Euphrates Valley. And 10 miles south of the city or the ruins of the city of Babylon, there's a plain there's a big plain with mountains on either side of it. That, they believe that is the plain of Dura that's mentioned here in Daniel chapter 1. And actually, what's incredible is that one biblical archaeologist has actually found what he believes to be the, the remains of a huge base, which could have been, we don't know, but could have been something like a platform for a statue. Because as you'll see, this statue is 60 qubits, if you've got an NLT translation it might change the qubit measurements into feet for you, I think it does, 90 feet high by just nine feet wide. Okay, so that's a very tall and thin structure, It would have probably needed a base and they think they may have actually found the brick base for this statue. So when we're thinking about the size and dimensions of this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, this gold image, I think we need to be thinking more kind of Washington Monument. You know the Washington Monument, the big kind of needle thing that sticks up outside of the, uh, is it the Lincoln Memorial? You you would know, you're American. It's near there, isn't it? Right. Um, The big needle thing that sticks up, Washington Monument. Think that rather than Statue of Liberty, okay? That's the kind of size we're looking at. Uh, We're told it was gold. I think many scholars believe it was more probably gold-lined, like gold-plated, you know, rather than solid gold. But either or, this, this is a striking image. It would have looked spectacular. It was set up in this plain with mountains on either side. Uh, you know the Angel of the North? The big thing that you drive past if you're going to Newcastle? This was taller than that. It was taller than that. So it would have stuck out for miles around. It would have looked absolutely massive, okay? Glistening in every direction. And we hear that Nebuchadnezzar sends to all of those in government. He's, he sends to the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates. There's actually seven forms of government mentioned there. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. How many times did you hear Ruth repeat that as well when she read through it? Lots, right? Repetition. And then how many instruments? She had to keep repeating them as well. Six forms of instrument, seven forms of government. These numbers are important, okay? And so he calls all these guys together ...to this image, and then a herald stands up and says, listen, the minute that you hear the sound of these instruments playing, you are going to bow down and worship. And anybody who doesn't is going to be immediately, I want you to understand, immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace, which would have been visible for all those gathered. They would have seen that furnace. Which is not like a big coal fire. It's not like a pizza oven. This is a big room. Okay. That is literally just flames. I want you to think. Anybody ever been to Colebrookdale? And there's the furnace there. There's the the, the place where they used to melt steel. Huge room. I want you to think that. That's what we're talking about. Anybody who doesn't fall down and worship is being thrown into the fiery furnace. Now church, I want you to understand here today that there are five things. Five things that we today need to understand about the kind of worship that Nebuchadnezzar commanded. There's five things that we need to know that are gonna be relevant for us today, that are gonna help for us to identify false worship in 2021. How many of you understand that there's true worship and false worship? How many of you understand that there's something Jesus taught about? You ever read the story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well in Samaria? What does he say? true worshippers will worship me in spirit and in truth now if there are true worshippers what does that mean by inference there are false worshippers amen there are false worshippers they don't think they're false worshippers but Jesus says they are false worshippers if they don't worship him in what in spirit and in truth truth in truth, okay? So I'm going to give you five things you need to know about Nebuchadnezzar's image worship that are also going to be able to tell you and help you to identify false systems of worship in the world today. Is that okay? Firstly, the first thing you need to know about Nebuchadnezzar's image worship was this, that it was a perversion of God's Revelation. It was a perversion of God's revelation. In chapter 2, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, didn't he? And in that dream, he saw a great image. A huge, mighty, frightening image. And it was so frightening, we're told, that it actually stopped Nebuchadnezzar sleeping for a while. He couldn't go back to sleep. And do you remember, that statue had a head of gold... A chest of silver, a stomach and thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron. And the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. They were weak. And now each metal represented what? Daniel interpreted it, didn't he? He heard from God. He interpreted the dream. He says every form of metal, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, it represents a form of human government. It represented a form of human government, each following on seamlessly from the other until a rock smashes the feet where the clay meets with the iron and it's weak. And the the, the rock represented what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The rock of the kingdom of God smashes this statue to dust. It's gone, completely gone. And it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Isn't that incredible? A striking image. Now, who or what was represented by the gold head in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Do you know? Well, Daniel says, doesn't he? He says, you, O king, are the head of gold. You, O king, are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Now, what that meant, what that meant, rather, what Daniel said is that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar Listen to this because it's important. God had given to Nebuchadnezzar, the sinful tyrant, the guy that burns people alive in furnaces. God had given to him the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Did you hear me? God gave Nebuchadnezzar kingdom, power, strength, and glory. I want you to understand... That even the tyrants who deny God on the earth today, tyrannical rulers, leaders of government, people who hate the message of the gospel, were still put in place by the God of the Bible. And they will be taken out of their place by the God of the Bible. Amen? God is sovereign even over the wicked. He has a purpose. Now, God has given to Nebuchadnezzar kingdom, power, strength, and glory forever. Did he give it forever? No, because the kingdom of gold was followed by silver. Another kingdom. God gave it him for a season until the kingdom of silver supplants him. The point of the dream in Daniel chapter 2 is to show that it's God who is Lord of lords. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not the Medes Persians, not the Greeks, not the Romans, not the forms of government that are yet to come, the, the clay and the, the iron, but God will have a kingdom which endures forever. I want you to see that Nebuchadnezzar's image that he sets up in this plane is a perversion of that original revelation by God. It's a perversion of it. This image that he sets up. Where are the weakened feet? Where is the silver? Where is the bronze? Where is the iron? It's gone. It's been replaced with what? It's all gold. It's all gold. Not just the head. It's all gold. I want you to see that this image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up in Daniel chapter 3 is a shaking fist at God. It's a shaking fist at the heavens. It's saying to God, I reject you. I reject your sovereignty. I am sovereign. I am the kingdom. I am the power. I am the might. I am the glory forever and nobody will take it from me, not even you, God. Nebuchadnezzar rejected the limitations and the boundaries that God had set upon his life. He rejected them. He said, I will not be defined by you, God. I want you to understand that this rejection of the boundaries and limitations upon Nebuchadnezzar's life what we're seeing here is the ground and foundation of all sin it's rebellion against God it's a rejection of God's sovereignty it's a desire to be what we call autonomous you don't get to define me God I define me that is the ground of and foundation of all human sinfulness. To throw off limitations. It's a desire to actually be God. You see this? It's a desire to be God. And this, the, the fruit of this kind of rebellion. You understand that? that's how the devil sinned in the first place. It was a desire to usurp God's given limitations. In that Lucifer was not God. He was a ministering spirit. But he wanted to usurp the limitations and boundaries upon his life which God had ordained he wanted to be more it's the root and foundation of all sinfulness and the fruit of this kind of rebellion and it's alive today it's alive and well in the world in fact it's celebrated it's celebrated This same attitude that Nebuchadnezzar had it's celebrated and I'm going to show you how okay? the fruit of this rebellion against God's sovereign decree how will you feel if you act like Nebuchadnezzar you'll feel restless it's never enough no matter how great the heights are that you reach in life. No matter how much money you earn. No, how, no matter how much acclaim you receive. It's never enough. you restless. There's a selfish ambition inside of you. And there's an inability to be satisfied with your life. You always want more. You always feel that you deserve more somehow. Are you seeing this now? How that spirit's alive in the world? How it's actually encouraged in the church? You deserve more. You know, you're not living God's best for you right now. God had all these amazing things for you, but you, you just didn't step into it and you've missed it. So, how do Christians live? Restless, dissatisfied, disappointed with God. There's a selfish ambition that begins to come to the fore. I want to say to you today, brothers and sisters, there's there's a very simple truth that we've forgotten in the church that used to be in the church. There are many simple truths that the church has forgotten in this day and age. One of them is this there's a beauty, there is a profound and simple beauty in accepting the station and position that God has allotted to you in this life. There is a profound beauty in simply accepting the station that God has allotted to you. Now I want to make an example to make this clearer. It's not been allotted to Graham Phillips of Whitmarine's Wolverhampton to be the king of England. It simply hasn't. I was born into the wrong family. I'm not a Windsor. My family is lovely, but we're not in an aristocratic line. Now, no amount of hoping or strategizing or hard graft or declarations or prayer is going to change that simple fact that I will never be the king of England. Sorry that I'm crushing dreams for people in the room right now. But you won't be either. Alright? The sooner that I accept the God-given boundaries and limitations on my life, the soon as I accept that I have limitations in terms of my energy, my resources, my time, my money, my influence, is the moment that I begin to enjoy them. Do you hear me on this? It's very practical. God has allotted to each and every single person a specific station in life. Okay. The key to enjoying it is to stop wishing that he'd given you another one. Amen? Let's move on. The second thing I want you to know about this image worship was that it was man-centered. It was centered upon humanity. Now, we don't know for certain whether the image bore the resemblance of Nebuchadnezzar himself. We're not told that by Scripture. It doesn't say that it looked like Nebuchadnezzar. But what we can know is that without a shadow of a doubt, this image represented Nebuchadnezzar. It represented his kingdom. It represented his glory. And worshipping the image was a sign of allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. It was a sign of allegiance and worship to the kingdom of Babylon. We know this because later on, as Ruth read in the chapter, he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he goes, who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? I want you to understand that the Babylonians weren't atheists. They had gods. They had Bel, Nebo, uh, they had Marduk. They, They had gods. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't see himself as inferior to those gods, does he? Because he says, who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? This is humanism. This is humanism, okay? Anybody know what humanism is? Humanism is a form of government that says there is no God above state. Demands worship of state. Humanity is the the ultimate, the pinnacle of all existence. There's nothing above. Look to communist Russia, look to communist China, there you've got humanistic forms of government and sadly more and more in the West this is the way we've been drifting for decades even hundreds of years since the Enlightenment drifting from a Christian or Judeo-Christian worldview at the center of government towards a godless form of humanism in government. And I want you to know something about humanism. I want you to understand something that every single example in history of humanistic government has tended to end up deifying its leaders. Do you know what that means? Turning its leaders into mini-gods. Did you know that? I want you to think about it. Babylon, we've got Nebuchadnezzar. Who's the God who's gonna rescue from my hand? What's he doing? Asking them to worship an image of him. (laughs) The Roman Empire, the cult of Caesar. Yeah, you can worship your own gods, but just make sure you put a a little pinch of incense on Caesar's uh, altar, right? And we'll let you do whatever you want. We'll let you go to church. We'll let you go to the synagogue. Just put a little pinch of incense on Caesar's altar. That's all. The Fuhrer of Nazi Germany, deification. Stalin and the Soviet state. Mao, communist China, and so on. Each of those states has demanded some form of worship from its subjects. And I I worry. I worry for the West. I don't know where we're going. But right now the trajectory is away from the values that made the West so prosperous. Judeo-Christian values. Great book that Bucky bought me actually. was Tom Holland, Dominion. Highly recommend that book. Guy's an atheist. But he's understood this, that it was Judeo-Christian values that gave rise to the success and the prosperity of the West. And now, as we continually move further and further away from those values, we move further and further towards a form of humanistic government. And we know from history where that leads. It's very concerning. And we must pray for our nation. We must pray for our leaders. Secondly, how do we know that this worship was man-centered? I'm going to try and move more quickly. Numerology. How many of you know what numerology is? The study of numbers. The study of numbers. Now, numerology in the Bible is actually really interesting. It's a really interesting study. You can talk to Garth about it. He knows far more than I do. But numerology in the Bible is very interesting. Now, of course, like anything, it can be pressed too far. It can be pressed too far too far okay and there are books where you shouldn't press numerology too far okay however we are in the book of Daniel it is a prophetic revelation where numerological patterns patterns in numbers shouldn't be disregarded it shouldn't be disregarded we know that certain numbers mean certain things in scripture don't we did you know that the number three often is a symbolic of perfection or of God The number seven is often uh, symbolic of spiritual perfection or completeness. The number ten, for example, is symbolic of human systems of government. And how many of you know what the number six is symbolic for? Man. We know in Revelation, don't we? Revelation 13, 666, which is the number of man. Six is the number of man. It's synonymous with mankind. So what might we draw from this? Well, first off, we read ten times in that one chapter that it was Nebuchadnezzar personally who set up this image. Ten times it tells us that. What's ten symbolic of? Human government. Human government. So what's that telling us through those numbers? It's telling us Babylon's system of government was autocratic. The king did whatever he pleased He had set himself up and ruled like a god. What he said went. And we also know that the image that was set up is 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide. It was symbolic of what? Humanity. So to worship and bow to this image was to bow to man. It was to worship the state. It was to worship mankind. One feels like Nebuchadnezzar might have agreed with the atheist philosopher Nietzsche. You ever heard of Nietzsche before? I don't recommend you read him but he said this, there cannot be a God because if there were one I could not believe that I was not he. I think Nebuchadnezzar would agree with him. Nebuchadnezzar was an archetypal narcissist. He was obsessed with his own image and glory. He was obsessed with his ruling over his people like a mini-god. The third point we need to understand about this worship of the golden image is that it appealed to the senses. It appealed to the senses. There was an impressive golden statue to beguile the eyes, the sound of many instruments to ensnare the ears, and the sight of a great multitude of people, powerful people no less, okay? Not just any uh, Tom, Dick, or Harry we're talking about, leaders from across the known world. What a spectacle it would have been. And I want you to understand there was no hurdle or boundary to worshipping and bowing. There's no mention of sin. You don't have to bring a calf to sacrifice or a dove. There's no mention of sin to be atoned for. It's not like Jerusalem. There's not blood pouring down from the altar. It would have been quite gruesome. I don't think we always think about that, do we? You know, the temple worship at Jerusalem. The amount of blood there would have been. None of that here. Just lots of glitz and glamour. No cost to this worship. All that was asked was that you succumb to your senses and bow. It's not hard, is it? Fourthly, this type of worship was universal in nature. We're told several times that Nebuchadnezzar invites leaders of every stripe, every type of leader. We've got politicians, lawyers, money men, scholars, right across the empire coming to worship this image. And his intent was to unify all of the lands under one religion. I want you to see this. It was a perverse kind of unity movement. Not all unity is good unity. Do you understand? This unity in worship wasn't based upon theology or truth, but upon fear. Fear of the power of Babylon. Fear of standing alone. Fear of ridicule, persecution, and death. I want you to see again the linkage between Daniel and Revelation. Both are prophetic books. And we see in Revelation 13, what do we see? We see that in the last days there will be another image set up. There will be another image set up. Just like this one. Nebuchadnezzar is a type of Antichrist. He's a forerunner. There will be another image that is set up. And we're told that the false prophet will say to everyone, worship the image. If you don't, we'll kill you. There will be a form of one world religion in the last days. A perversion of religion. I want you to see that not all unity is good unity. Fifthly, the final thing that we should note is this. That there was coercion. There was coercion. Okay, There was an extreme price to pay for anyone who would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image. They would be thrown into the fiery furnace. Stick with me on this. In any system of false worship, any at all, any worldly, narcissistic form of religion, there is always a price to pay for those who do not conform. Always. In these religious systems, you will find multiple levels of manipulation, abuse, and coercion in every form. Of this kind of false worship. The base motivation behind the worship of Nebuchadnezzar's image was ultimately fear. Fear of what would happen if you didn't. Now in the last five minutes before I finish. I know it's been quite hard going. This is heavy stuff. But I want to show you now how you can use these five points that I've just mentioned. To identify any form of false worship. Any form, even worship that puts itself forward as Christian worship. So how can I tell a false Christianity from a true Christianity? Did you ever think of that? That there might be churches around the world that are not really churches of Jesus? You know, I think it was John Piper who said, Don't you think the devil could do a lot more damage by getting behind a pulpit through crooked ideas than he could through working through a criminal. I think that's absolutely true. So many Christians don't think about these things. They don't ever question that the person stood behind the pulpit. Walking around in a dog collar might not really be what they say they are. This is why discernment's important, brothers and sisters. Amen. So quickly, before the children come in. Too late. <laughs> come on in. So how can I tell... A false Christianity from a true Christianity. I'll be a couple of minutes, guys, and then we're ready. Number one, number one, it will pervert God's Word. It will pervert God's Word. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's image removed the silver, the bronze, and the iron, so false teachers will remove certain parts of God's revelation. Are you with me? They will remove certain parts of God's re- revelation. They will never preach through the Bible. You'll never find a false teacher moving verse by verse through the Bible. What they'll do is they'll present certain parts of it over and over and over and over again. The same parts over and over and over again. The parts that they prefer, the the parts that they have decided are the best. And they ignore the rest of the revelation that Scripture has to offer us. I want you to see this. The word that we have, heresy, have you heard that word before, heresy? It comes from the Greek word hireo. okay? That means to choose or to prefer. To choose or to prefer. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He chose to prefer the gold which represented him over the rest of the vision. And so the false minister chooses which parts of God's revelation they prefer. And they ignore the rest. They decide... To preach only that. And that's how heresy begins, brothers and sisters. It's a refusal to present God's word as it is. Secondly, false worship will be man-centered. Always man-centered. It won't be God-centered. It will be man-centered. You'll find that every message is about you. Ten ways you can be bolder. How to walk in healing power. Become a prosperous person. It will always be centered on you. God becomes just a means to an end. It's just a means to an end to make you more successful. At the center of these organizations also, you'll find it's also man-centered. You'll find instead of a biblical form of leadership, you will find one person who has set themselves up as some sort of mini king, who rules just like a god, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Thirdly, the worship will be carnal. It will appeal to the senses. Now, I'm a musician. I love music. I love it. But also as a musician, I recognize music's power. It has extraordinary power. And unless we're using our discernment as Christians, we can allow our senses to become ensnared by beautiful music and let go of our reasoning faculties. Have you ever heard that? Let go of your mind. Don't think. Switch off. Never do that. If anybody encourages you to do that in a worship service, get out. As they say, heresy is often sung well before it's preached fourthly in all forms of false christian worship a false form of unity will be promoted a false form of unity hear me when i say this unity is not bad there's nothing wrong with unity but there is a movement today in the world called ecumenism i don't know if you've heard of it and this movement seeks unity for the sake of unity okay How many of you know what I'm talking about? They seek unity for the sake of unity. or we just all want to get along. We don't want to fall out. You know, if we could all just be be better friends, it would be a better world, right? This is a false form of unity. We know that true unity is where God commands the blessing. True unity is a wonderful, wonderful thing that we share here in this, in this communion, in this church. However, biblical unity, biblical unity is not like worldly unity, okay? Biblical unity is built upon truth. It's built upon truth, or in other words, upon sound doctrine. Don't be afraid of the word Doctrine. Don't be afraid of the word theology. If any Christian teaches you these are dirty words, run a mile. True Christian unity is built upon sound doctrine, upon truth. In this unity movement, ecumenism, where we all just want to be mates, okay, doctrine is always dumbed down. It's always dumbed down. We we don't want to talk about that. Or it's even despised. Oh, you're being legalistic. Oh, you're just being so mind-led you know you're being so divisive you're such a divisive Christian but Jesus told us didn't he that truth does divide truth does divide and it should divide what did he say I didn't come to bring peace on the earth but a what a sword truth divides and division is not to be blamed upon truth ever but upon sinful hearts that refuse to submit to the truth Amen? Don't be sucked in by this false unity movement. Unity must be pursued absolutely, but not at the expense of truth. And fifthly, in false systems of worship, there will always be evidence of coercion, abuse, manipulation, and control. Where there is smoke, there is fire. There will be evidence of these four things. Within false systems of worship, there will always be, brothers and sisters, a cost to not following with the rest of the crowd, to not bowing down to the celebrity cult image that's set up before you. There will always be systems, not just one person, but systems of control and abuse and manipulation that have been set up to keep people from challenging the leader. Healthy debate and questioning is not welcomed in these kinds of system. Wherever you find an unwillingness to get the Bible out, run a mile. That is an abusive, coercive system of worship. Now to finish with, I know I've gone on a long time, but this is important stuff, I think. And I will continue because there's a whole half of the chapter I've not even covered. So in two weeks' time, I will go back and do this again on October 31st. But I want you to say this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have stood here. They're stood here in this plain. And they look around. And they've got all these people. All of the great and the good. All of the wealthy and influential. They're here right in front of them. From right across the empire, they're bowing down before this image. These are not foolish people. I want you to know that the Babylonian Empire some of their inventions, some of the things that they thought through are still things we use today. Our time, the way we measure time, 60 minutes in an hour, Babylon, right? These weren't stupid people. Surely they knew, surely they were intelligent enough to know that this flippin' big statue isn't God. Don't they know that? Don't they see it's just a dead idol? Of course they do. Of course they can see that. But listen, listen, they have families to feed. They have jobs that need doing. They have got money to make. Why throw all that away for the sake of a small, painless token of allegiance? It's just a bow, It's all. Just one little bow and the king will let you get on with whatever it is that you're doing. He'll even let you worship the true God Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He'll even let you pray. He'll let you keep your influential positions in court. Don't be stupid. Don't be reckless. Don't throw away all of that. Don't make this a hill to die on. That is always how compromise comes in. It won't be. It won't be in this nation that they say, you must stop worshiping Jesus Christ. Firstly, it will be, we're gonna get you to compromise. Before you worship Jesus, do this. That's how it's gonna come. I want you to imagine the pressure that those men were under, the thoughts that would have been running through their head. Following Jesus in these days is getting more and more like that, isn't it? It feels like swimming upstream, I don't know about you. It's tiring. I often feel exposed, I feel lonely. It's not glamorous to make a stand for Christ. There's no public acclaim for doing so. You ain't gonna get a blue tick on social media for standing up for truth. And those who refuse to compromise in these days, we might not be thrown into a fiery furnace yet, but we are thrown into a furnace of sorts, a furnace of ridicule, derision. What an idiot. What a fool. Are you ready for what's coming, brothers and sisters? Are you ready? It's not going to be easy to be a Christian in the days that are coming. I want you to know that. I'm going to read you a quote from Paul Washer to finish with. He says this about martyrdom We'll be called things that we are not, we'll be persecuted, not for being followers of Christ but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which is, of course, just love and and tolerance and stuff. Down through history, we have had the wrong idea of martyrdom and persecution. You think that these men were persecuted and martyred for their sincere faith in Jesus Christ? That was the real reason, but no one heard that publicly. They were martyred and they were persecuted, not as followers of Jesus, but as enemies of the state, as bigots, as narrow-minded, stupid people that had fallen for a ruse and could contribute nothing to society. Your suffering will not be noble, so your mind must be filled with the Word of God when all people persecute you and turn on you just invite the worship team to come and we're going to sing one song as we finish the the, the strength of character that these three men had in the face of t- tyranny it didn't come out of nowhere right it, they didn't just stir it up on the spot i want you to see that it began way back in daniel chapter one where they refused to eat the diet of nebuchadnezzar do you remember that they said i won't eat that diet they made a small stand they wouldn't compromise in these little things Jesus says, doesn't he, one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Let's not believe fancifully that we would be there, shoulder to shoulder with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, ready to go into the fire when we can't even make time for God on a Sunday. Church, we have to begin where Daniel and his three friends began, by being consistently faithful in the little things. Faithful in prayer. Faithful in a worship. Faithful in participation in the local church. And then, by God's grace, may we be strengthened and readied for the greater tests ahead. Let's stand. Lord, we pray that in our times you would help us to be faithful in the little things. Help us to make stands, Father, in these small areas of worship and devotion to you. Lord, forgive us where maybe we haven't done that. Every day we fail in that respect. But Lord, we pray you might strengthen us as a church to be a church that will remain holy in the days that are to come. Help us to be a church that does not bow the knee to false worship. Help us to be a church that recognizes truth from error and calls out the false for what it is in humility, without pride, but with peace And a quietness, a strong quietness and conviction to follow Jesus in these days when there are so many distractions. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.